now in complete control of the government of this state. I made no campaign promises because until a few weeks ago, I had no hope of being elected. <laughs> now, however, I have something more than a hope. Jim Geddes has something less than a chance. <laughs> every straw vote, every independent poll shows that I'll be elected. Now I can afford to make some promises. <laughs> And the slum child, no, they can expect my best efforts in their interests. The decent, ordinary citizens know that I'll do everything in my power to protect the underprivileged, the underpaid, and the underfed. Mother, is Pop Governor yet? Not yet, Junior. Well, I'd make my promises now if I weren't too busy arranging to keep them. Here's one promise I'll make. And boss Jim Geddes knows I'll keep it. My first official act as governor of the state will be to appoint a special district attorney to arrange for the indictment, prosecution, and conviction of boss Jim W. Geddes. are listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. The following podcast contains adult language, adult situations, and spoilers for the movies discussed occur often. You've been warned. Now, take it away, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on sight. back it is they must be destroyed on site episode 237 i'm your host lee the greatest curse that's ever been inflicted on the human race russell and i'm joined by the other lee my co-host the lovely lee i'm not a gentleman hardy how are you doing i'm not a gentleman i'm actually a lady oh I am doing fantastic, as always. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Daniel was going to be on the show, and so I was kind of hoping we'd get like a much deeper, more sophisticated political read of this movie. Uh, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> Probably not. Um, so neither of us are sophisticated. No. Well, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. But uh, tonight, we, we are tackling the quote-unquote greatest movie of all time, in many people's opinion, uh, for a lot of years, uh, Citizen Kane from 1941. So that's going to be interesting. We'll see if we can uh, pull anything out of it that hasn't already been pulled out of a movie that's been scrutinized and dissected for decades now. Every little piece, every little thing has been uh, just dissected and and observed and talked about. But uh, fuck it. We'll just, we're we're going to give our opinion of the film. So Whatever. Yeah. Before we get into that, though, I will mention a couple things I watched uh, recently. So I've been watching a lot of like horror on Shudder recently because Shudder's gotten really good. You're getting like four or five new films or even more every month now. Like oh, that's they, awesome. They just, they just dump a bunch of stuff on there now. It used to be the joke that Shudder only had like five films, but now they got tons of stuff. And so the first thing I watched, um, which I think is like an in-house Shudder production kind of thing, like promoted by Shudder kind of thing. It's called uh, Vicious Fun from 2020. It's set in the 80s 
And maybe it's one of its biggest problems is that it, it tries a little too hard to be 80s. Like, it, you know, it kind of throws it in your face a little bit, a little too quirky in some regards. But the premise is that it's a, uh, a writer for a horror magazine who, you know, does movie reviews and stuff like that and watches all kinds of slasher movies and shit through a case of mistaken identity finds himself after hours in this Chinese restaurant that's holding a meeting for it's sort of like a group therapy meeting for serial killers all across the country. They, they sort of come here and, and have like some sort of like group therapy meeting hangout thing. And he, he has to like try to pretend to be that serial killer that they think he is. And I think they could have went a bit farther with that premise. They don't quite, go as far of it as, as, as they could have but uh, it's still pretty fun, it, a lot of good gore some neat twists uh, real good performances and uh, I thought it was pretty well worth checking out, it, it's, it's, it was pretty fun uh, overall, I liked it so, I'll have to check it out because I yeah. have Shudder yeah, it, it was it was good. Like I said, it, it sometimes it, it leans on that '80s shit a little too much. Like, you know, opposed to something like Turbo Kid, uh, which we watched on a date night, where it's like, yeah, you know what? They like there's a lot of '80s stuff in it, but it's very I don't know. It just fits in the world better. Like, I think it's also because it like it stopped at the '80s, so it wasn't mm-hmm. as if it was in the '80s. It's just technology in general mm-hmm. never passed the '80s. Right. And the other thing I watched, uh, speaking of the 80s, right on the tail end of the 80s, it's, it's called uh, Things from 1989. And uh, this is a sort of notoriously bad, low budget horror film from Canada. It's so low budget that it's like there's no professional actors in it. Basically, uh, the script is incredibly incompetent. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the line reads are bad the dubbing for their, for their line reads is terrible, scenes don't make sense um, <laughs> and like some of the stuff in the script, like some people will say things in a single line that contradicts what they started out saying in the sentence it, it, it's, it's literally that bad, it, it feels like a 13 year old wrote it shelved it, went to full film school flunked out of film school and then decided to make a movie anyway and just use that script without like you know proofreading it or anything like that but <laughs> that i have being, money here's yeah. the movie <laughs> oh there's no there's no money in this movie it, it's it's literally like but even I've, like I've, basic though if you to make a movie like it's still costs a pretty penny like if you don't get funding like you well, can't just be a joe boy who does it I, I can't remember how much money this this actually cost him to make but it was very very little uh even in 1989 terms despite it being like just bottom of the barrel as far as production and everything goes there's something kind of engaging about it there there is the so bad it's good element to it but also it's with with these sort of low budget productions like even if there's no talent and any know-how at all usually you'll get some heart and drive from the people making it you know like they seriously really wanted to make a movie and they wanted to make it good they just <laughs> they just had no ability to do it but their actual desire and their and the love for doing it actually comes through so <laughs> i feel like and, you're hinting at the movie that we did <laughs> like the one that i did oh no the, the no, go, go, ghost, ghost Beaver Kick is way, way, way better uh, on, on almost every front. But um, so you're explaining it. Are you trying to like? No, no, no. But uh, but uh, it it goes from being so bad it's good to just being like really interesting and surreal by accident. It becomes like a piece of surreal horror. And it kind of works on those terms. And I found it really engaging and entertaining just because it was so just off the track from anything you expect in a, in a real movie. So I actually kind of recommend it. Yeah, you should actually see it. I, I do really enjoy like these these sort of movies that are like outsider movies that are, you know, made for a penny. And but there's a, like a lot of heart behind them, even if they like come off the fun, the final product comes sort of comes off terrible in almost every uh, usual sort of uh regard you know like oh uh, you know no terrible acting terrible script effects look shitty but there's still something about it that's very just you can't take your eyes off it and things is one of those sort of movies so i, I would probably recommend you know watch it drunk with friends so you probably have more fun with it but um <laughs> but I, I enjoyed it did you have anything you wanted to uh mention 
Uh, yeah, I did. It's the one that another one that we did for date night. Actually, it was uh, uh, Doctor uh, Caligari's cabinet. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, the reason I wanted to bring it up. I know we watched it like a couple weeks ago now. Yeah. Well, not that long ago, but any reason. The reason I want to bring it up was because this is my first silent film that I got to watch, that got to mm -hmm. experience. So I thought that was kind of a, a really cool thing to experience. And actually seeing the thought that's put into a lot of these movies, because they don't have a lot of uh, funding and they don't have a lot of uh, set and they don't have a lot of um, flexibility when it comes to like anything. Like, mm -hmm. first of all, silent films have to be silent. So there's no emphasis on silent at all. Like, there's just silence because it's there. Unlike mm -hmm. today's movies where there's a silent scene, there's an emphasis on that silent scene. Yeah. And I thought they did a really good job. Like, any moments that were supposed to be kind of silent, like, when are supposed to be more eerie and creepy and build, like, intensify, they did it really well. I think the setting, the set was beyond incredible like mm -hmm. even though it was like paper mache background it was just so visually appealing to look at like i love that little house like the tiny house that doc the doctor lived in mm -hmm. it was just a one bedroom with nothing house but it's still really cool like i still thought it was a an amazing concept like there what there wasn't even a bed it was just a chair in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was so bad like when you think of it like realistically there's nothing to this house but that's all they had and they still made it a very enjoyable movie. And I thought the use of color was amazing, how they did the, the yellow in the background when mm -hmm. it was day, and then at night, or when they turn off the lights, it was blue in the background. And uh, I didn't recognize it at first, but when you had mentioned it, and then we saw the one scene where they turn off the lights, that was like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really cool. And the set as well is so unreal. Like, it's very uh, dreamlike. Mm -hmm. So it's very like everything in the, the the background, like the doors are not the properly shaped. Everything's a little bit ridiculous. I thought that helped because they didn't have a proper set. Instead, they said, well, screw this. Let's just make it uh, more surreal. And I thought that actually uh, emphasized on the film, the type of film it was. And also how the the shapes that they used in the background, like to mm -hmm. create depth was really cool. Like how you said they had a straight staircase and they used the lighting to make it look like it was a, a swirly staircase, yeah. all that stuff, all that stuff I thought was freaking brilliant. Like the creativity that went in that to create that, like it's so good. Like the effort mm -hmm. that has to be put into something like that versus a movie that made that's made today is like night and day. We have yeah. everything at our disposal. They went and tried to make this scary movie with very little and they made something incredible. Like yeah. definitely, definitely worth watching. Uh, I'm happy I have got to watch it because mm -hmm. that was, yeah, that was that was an experience. Like I loved it. Yeah, it was it was it was a it was a fun date night to uh, see you like get a lot out of that film too. It was it was mm -hmm. fun. Yeah, it was good. Mm hmm. I liked it. I'm just gonna kill that moth. It came back to life. Or it's another <laughs> moth. This is professional. <laughs> This we professional this podcast. Oh no, this is staying in. Just technical difficulties. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm trying to kill it with a giant feather duster too. Let's Where'd you go, bitch? All right. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm watching Lee attempt to kill a moth in his bedroom. Did he get it? Is it there? Did you die? Man versus moth. Who wins? We watch in anticipation. <laughs> Lee with his feather duster, the moth just disappearing. Do you find it? Nope. Moth is winning. Son of a bitch, stop. Oh, we're getting some anger. <laughs> Just see a green feather duster. It's the best thing ever. <laughs> I don't know if you're swatting at the moth or if you're swatting at air. This is good pathetic. For those of you who want to know, moth is winning. <laughs> Live updates. <laughs> Crawled under the door. I knocked enough of the dust off its wings, I guess. 
I was trying to do commentary, but it didn't come out very well. <laughs> and I'll just briefly mention before we take a break, if you listen to the last episode, you'll know that I have a new podcast with our friend Gary Hill and a uh, new friend Cameron Scott. We are doing the Last Call at Torchy's podcast, where we're covering the filmography of Walter Hill, one film at a time, chronologically. And we just did an episode, uh, this will be episode two, on The Driver, which is now out on the Legion Podcast Network. Uh, you can find it under the Cinema Beef, or if you just subscribe to the Legion Podcast feed on like Apple Podcasts or whatever, it'll be in there. You'll find it. We also did a Patreon bonus episode, so if you're one of the Patreons for Legion Podcast, which is cheap it's two dollars uh you'll get the episode we just did on drive the film that is highly influenced by the driver uh go check that out we're gonna take a quick fucking break and we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about citizen kane i'm sure that's gonna go real well <laughs> you come to the right place my name is gary and i'm your guide to cinema beef podcast every episode we not only deliver film reviews we also dismantle some of your favorite and most hated films Sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. Hey, 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 you shut your face! If we want to hear you talk, I will shove my arm up your ass and work your mouth like a puppet. All right, calm down, calm down. Every show I hope to have a new co-host, podcasters, listeners alike. That's right, I'm talking to you people. I take all comers. Oh, slaps. That's not very nice. The only rules, well, let's ask the best cooler in the business. All you have to do is follow three simple rules. One, never underestimate your opponent. Expect the unexpected. Two, take it outside. Never start anything inside the bar unless it's absolutely necessary. Three, yes. So join the insanity and please vent your frustrations. I'm available on TalkShoe, iTunes, and Stitcher Smart Radio. Remember, here at the Sun Beef Podcast, if you got beef, I've got the grinder. And we're going to be looking at Citizen Kane from 1941. And here's a bit of the incredibly long but unique trailer that uh, I actually so do. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I do I do recommend that uh, you guys check out the the trailer that Orson Welles did for this. Uh, that's on YouTube. Um, it's definitely mm -hmm. unlike any other trailer you're going to see. Thank you. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Orson Welles. I'm speaking for the Mercury Theater, and what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title, and we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. It's certainly coming, coming to this theater. 
And I think our Mercury actors make it an attraction. I'd like you to meet them. Speaking of attractions, all the chorus girls are certainly an attraction. But frankly, ladies and gentlemen, we're just showing you the chorus girls for purposes of ballyhoo. It's pretty nice ballyhoo. But here's some of our real Mercury people. This is the first time you've seen most of them on the screen. Hey, uh, give Joe a little light. Thanks. Now smile for the folks, Joe. Smile. Joseph Cotton, ladies and gentlemen, that's it. Joseph Cotton, I think you're going to see a lot of him. Here's Ruth Warwick, whom I know you love. Ruth, look at the camera, Ruth. <laughs> we caught Ruth with her hair up. And here's somebody you've all heard on the radio, so I don't have to tell you he's wonderful, Ray Collins. Dorothy Comingore is a name I'm going to repeat. Dorothy Comingore. I won't have to repeat it much longer. You'll be repeating it. And here's George Kouluris, who's a grand actor. I'll say that name again. George Kouluris. Watch it. Here comes Everett Sloan. Look out, Everett. Oops. Everett Sloan, ladies and gentlemen. He isn't necessarily a comedian. And here's one of the best actors in the world, Agnes Moorhead. I've said a lot of nice things, but Erskine Sanford deserves some more. Erskine. Erskine Sanford. So does Paul. Paul. Paul Stewart, everybody. Citizen Kane is a modern American story about a man called Kane, Charles Foster Kane. I don't know how to tell you about him. There's so many things to say. I'll turn you over instead to the characters in the picture. As you'll see, they feel very strongly on the subject. And there's like another minute of that. So <laughs> it's really cool how he did it, though. Mm-hmm. He was just kind of saying, hey, here's the actors that are in this movie, and here is what the movie's about. It's, almost, it's, just, it's like appreciation for the actors. It's almost like a mini documentary, almost. It's like, it's, it's, it's basically what now on dvds or you know like the behind the scenes featurettes on dvds where you know they like interview the people playing in it and and producing the movie and stuff like it's it's a little bit like a precursor to what those sort of special features look like now on dvds and shit so mm-hmm. a lot of innovative stuff in this movie uh we'll get into it here directed of course by orson wells written by herman j mankowitz orson wells john hausman Roger Q. Denny and Molly Kent. Uh, and I apologize beforehand. I didn't do extensive notes on these people. One thing you can say is they're all known for being in Citizen Kane, which kind of solidifies their careers right there. Joseph Cotton as uh, Jedaliah Leland. And Joseph Cotton also appeared in The Thin Man, or The, the Third Man, I mean, and a whole ton of other great shit. It's going to be kind of the same story for pretty much most of the people in this cast, most of the principals anyway. Dorothy Cumming-Gore is Susan Alexander Kane. Angie's Moorhead is Mary Kane. Ruth Warwick is Emily Monroe Norton Kane. Ray Collins is James W. Geddes. Uh, Erskine Sanford is Herman Carter. Everett Sloan is Mr. Bernstein. Uh, William Olland is Jerry Thompson. Uh, then we got a bunch of other people here. And Orson Welles, credited last in here as Kane. Uh, Sonny Bupp as Kane the Third, and Buddy Swan as Kane, age eight as well. So um, uh, there you go. Synopsis here from Gary KMCD on IMDb saying, After his death, the life of Charles Foster Kane, newspaper magnet and all-around larger-than-life American, is told from the perspective of those who knew him. A newspaper reporter is interviewing those in Kane's life, hoping to learn the meaning of Kane's last word, Rosebud. Kane was sent to a boarding school at a young age after his mother struck it wit rich thanks to a mining claim that was signed over to her in lieu of rent. She came into this vast fortune at the age of 25 and promptly bought a newspaper. His idea of news was to make it as much as uh, reported along with his... Hmm... Looks like you fucked up your paragraph here. Um, along with his good friend, Jedediah Leland, uh, had a rollicking good time. Okay, unsuccessful in his bid for political office. His relationship with those around him began to deteriorate, and he dies old and alone, whispering the word rosebud. Yeah, okay. Um, might want to, you know, proofread your, your paragraphs there, uh, Gary. Usually you don't fuck up, but that one that one was bad. Um, we should send someone after him. Yeah. If he's still if he's still alive, it was probably I think this is one of those guys who was probably like doing these synopses when IMDB was in his infancy. Um forties. So, <laughs> it almost feels like it at this point. It was in the newspaper. IMDB was back in the newspaper. <laughs> uh yeah, so this is you know, this is a big epic film. It's 
very obviously based a little bit on Orson Welles sort of feud he was having with William Randolph Hearst and his mistress. Uh, so the, a little of there's a little true life kind of wrapped up in the actual uh, narrative here. But the most part, it, it, it's kind of Orson Welles telling this big grand story about this guy and what everyone thought of him and his place in American society. And there's some criticisms and shit going on, but uh, we'll, we'll get into it here. Lady Lee, this was your first time watching this. Uh, and this is for uh, your film class as well. So yeah. uh, what are your sort of general thoughts on it? I can see why it is recognized as one of these like brilliant movies and kind of stuck around as being one of the best movies. Cause mm-hmm. technically it's done incredibly well. Mm-hmm. The way the use of sound, the use of the music, the use of camera angles, all that stuff, it's all ridiculously well done. Like visually, when you're watching this movie, I say this a lot, but anyways, visually, when you're watching this movie, uh, it's extremely appealing. It actually like speaks a story with camera angles versus actually having to like uh, force the actors to act as much. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of uh, simple moves with how like at the beginning when we're introduced to Kane and all his fortunes, uh, you see the buildings, like the really tall buildings and it's filmed from like a low angle. So we're, it looks like we're looking up to these huge buildings and you just feel so minuscule and powerless because everything just seems so grandiose and big. And then there's these animals that he has where you're, on a higher angle so you're looking down on them and you just see the cap your captured animals that you feel like sad for mm-hmm. and there's nothing there to explain that like there's no acting with the animals and there's no acting with the, the building but it makes you feel that like you actually do feel that the sound is incredible like all the sound that he used was recorded mm-hmm. it wasn't natural sounds i can't remember the actual technical term because i'm terrible at that stuff but foley work yeah foley yeah foley there we go mm-hmm. but anyways all that that he did was really well done because everything like if you think about it 1941 it's not as if it was as easy as it is today mm-hmm. and he had all sorts of sounds and it was emphasis on those sounds and even like certain rooms where they're supposed to have this sense of emptiness there was an echo when the people talked and it was just simple things that made it really good did i actually enjoy the movie no <laughs> I, I honestly thought it was really boring the story was good the writing was good. The acting was phenomenal. Like I said, everything visually was amazing. It's just not my kind of movie. It was hard for me to get into it. I don't want to shut on it too much because it's just a personal preference uh, for types of movies I like to watch versus like actually uh, well-deserving credit that Merv- this movie does deserve. Mm-hmm. I'll kind of echo that. And maybe I'll just get maybe my criticisms out of the way. And then we can just talk about all this kind of stuff we did like about it. Dramatically, this is fine. Like the the story is a very classic one. Rise to power and then it's lonely at the top kind of idea. But it, it is really too long. I find it way too long for what, what is really there. And also, you, you can't help but know where it's going because of the movie's just so famous. You kind of know the story even when you haven't seen it. Watching it twice this week was basically the first time really watching it uh like i've seen scenes and stuff over the years and i know the story but you know i know where this is going so it's like it's two hours and i'm waiting for this to like pick up and go somewhere you know make me excited to get to the end of the story that i already know the end is what it is so like the the themes are well developed the story's well plotted for the most part although you know it's very long what's really cool here is this is a really successful exercise and film techniques and it brings several techniques together that were not ever really brought together before to, in all all in one film because th- this is like all of kind of like Orson Welles influences and he's like trying them out uh and on that alone it hugely becomes influential and important as it is going forward the beautiful black and white photography here like you're right like everything looks great there are so many different styles of filmmaking going on in this oh there is so, so like so many different techniques like he's he's just wells is just fucking showing off here because like, he's got like a mastery of all these different things and it right out of the gate it feels like it opens up like a universal horror film so you're you're going to his uh his house in Xanadu or whatever and it's like a dark mansion. It's a dark night. There's eerie, like horror movie music going on in the opening. And then there's like, you know, all these gothic horror visuals. 
then it gets up to his room where he's laying dying in bed and he's got his snow globe in his hand. And then all of a sudden it gets like super hero artsy because you have, you know, these good little neat little cuts in between where he dies and the nurse puts a sheet over his head or whatever. But the snow globe, you get that cool little brief scene where the nurse comes in and you see her through the snow globe. Like just, just really interesting to see in 19. 19- oh, and the use of sound too. So how the sound that is being made is not the exact same as what's there, but oh. its intention is to make it uh, seem like it's that, but it's not. And that's like, I think of one of the first time that it was kind of used in that sense. So you hear all this music in the background and it's, in replacement of like actual sounds and i think that's really cool because that made that whole first scene very creepy and very like again visually appealing like it was mm-hmm. interesting to watch and then then he switches over immediately after we see kane's death we get this documentary on his life in, in xanadu and the, the real cool thing is in here is he also has the audacity to put silent movie title cards silent movies style title cards in the actual documentary basically which is just fun and then we move on to the actual dramatic story going on here where it's the investigator trying to discover the rosebud uh thing what 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 did it mean when he said rosebud when he died he said he's like gonna invest you know uh do uh interviews with all these different people who knew kane throughout the years and then as that sort of progresses the film starts to feel like a film noir a little bit. Uh, there's like some German expressionism things kind of like creeping in here and there of the way it's lit and the way angles are shown. And then it's the only thing like, again, too long. And like, not a lot happens after that. Like it starts off of all these cool things. And then it just kind of eases into this really long tale of how, you know, everybody has their different opinions on who Kane was. It, it's interesting. Like, I mean, you know, yeah. the, the perspectives of the different people, like we don't have, you know, we're, we're only getting opinions of various people who survived him. We're not getting anything that's a hundred percent reliable because there's contradictions. So we have mm-hmm. all these like er, in, uh, unreliable narrators is his like best friend or whatever was by the time he's interviewed, he's old and kind of senile and, and he's sort of, Running off for cigars, yeah, asking for cigars and shit, and yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's 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 a, I don't want to say it's style over substance because it's not, but it there's there is just so much style on the screen that it's hard to ignore. It is. It was directed beautifully, and it was edited beautifully, and it was the sound was done beautifully. Like it was just incredibly uh, well made. Like when you think of a 1941 movie, you think of the technology they had back then. You think of anything, you think of other movies that you've seen. And this one just blows it out of the water. Like the sound that they did, like how uh, all the sounds, anytime you hear anything, it's very crisp. It's mm-hmm. very right on point. Uh, anything that's voiceover, it's very done very well. Uh, the whole beginning, the intro with the, the propaganda voiceover mm-hmm. was beautiful and i know that's still used and still kind of made fun of uh like futurama did something about it and there's like a couple Mm -hmm. other things where they still use that kind of that exact same voice for the voiceover so that's kind of like that birth of that uh voiceover Mm -hmm. type of voiceover and then just the scenes where they kind of foreshadow uh events like they kind of show you what's going to happen and the music that they use in that scene. So when they have the montage that's happening and they have mm-hmm. this music and they have the newspapers passing by, it creates that tension. It creates mm-hmm. that sense of chaos and that sense of feeling kind of crazy. So even when you see uh, Susan, when he forces her to become a singer because mm-hmm. he wants her to be a singer because he put singer in quotations, you see her go through that event of her struggling. Like she's singing and there's this really off music. It's haunting music. And then you see her like go through all the newspaper and the montages. And then it just ultimately leads her to her laying in a bed. And you know what happened. You see the medication and you see her laying in the bed and you what the scene that happened previously, you know that this girl tried to kill herself. Mm-hmm. So just how they do that, 
and they did it a couple times because even with the newspaper and the the affair and like the newspaper scenes and the music with like other like the like yeah just just how he does it just how the newspaper scenes and the music and the montages have this like way of predicting of what's going to happen like kind of foreshadowing mm-hmm. in a sense i yeah that was that was really like cool to watch and that kind of kept you that was the one moments where you kind of heard the stories and when you got to those moments your like body kind of just tensed up because that's actually it gave you that feeling mm-hmm. <laughs> i really like the performances like i think everybody's really good in this i think wells is fucking right off the bat just amazing like charming He's such a good actor mm-hmm. like his his sort of screen presence has never really changed all that much even even when he was you know later on and you know corpulent and could barely move and like hamming it up in in films and stuff for money so he could make his own stuff that most of it never ever got made or completed he's just so charming like he's always got this like intelligent scamp kind of look on his face who's you know getting away with something he's just got like this endless amount of screen presence the early remembrances of of kane as as a as a young man where he's like this hard-working self-made idealist kind of rebel uh almost but eventually he kind of like destroys his own life and soul by becoming one of the sort of shitty monsters he's kind of pushing against you know once he became the system like replaced the system he was sort of fighting against and became it it kind of poisoned him with his power and control like he he spent his life trying to control people and put them in boxes and, and make them do what he wanted and so it just pushed people away and so you get him you get him at the end where all he has basically is the statues that he collected over the years Mm because those are you know representations of people but those are ones he can actually lord over and then you know they're not gonna they're not gonna push him away i I thought like that was a neat little motif uh throughout the film where he he kept collecting statues and kind of put it every time people sort of either got pushed out or left him, you know, kind of thing. Like he, he sort of replaced them with statues. Basically. I do like the snow globe. Some of these visual things he puts in the film here are now you would consider them kind of on the nose, right? Like mm-hmm. the sled and, and the snow globe and stuff. Like if, if you sort of put that shit in a movie now, it would feel on the nose, but it really didn't back then. And it's like, it really helps the audience kind of understand the kind of central themes that are going on. So, the sled at one point when he's a little kid is used as, you know, it, it's kind of like a symbol of his happiness and his innocence. Mm-hmm. And it's also kind of used as a weapon when that banker comes to take him off to uh, his inheritance or whatever. He uses the sled to try to push the banker away. Like he assaults the banker with the sled basically. Mm-hmm. And so like, it, it's kind of, it kind of marks a barrier between his sort of innocence and the corruption that's going to come from his new life. So, you know, he spends his entire life kind of like trying to get that back. And the snow globe, I felt like it connects visually to, you know, when he's happy playing in the snow as a child. And then at the end of his life, it kind of like it takes it full circle. So it like closes the loop on his life kind of thing, which I, I thought was a neat little visual uh, representation of that. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I don't know what you thought of those, but uh, I thought the sleigh. So mm-hmm. when you saw it at the beginning, when he was with his family and being taken away, it was kind of that triggering moment that right there and then that's what Kane was fighting for. He wanted to find that family again. Mm-hmm. He wanted that feeling. He wanted that sense of having that again because that's what he lost. Yeah. So throughout the whole movie, the way he controls people, the way he does stuff, it's as if it's he's trying to recreate that happiness that he had with his family, like mm-hmm. when he was truly happy, because it just seems he was never actually happy after that. He just paid for, he bought a lot of materialistic things, and he bought people with money, and yeah. like he bought his wives with money, he bought his fame and attention and he basically bought his whole following of people like when they mm-hmm. go for a picnic and there's this all these people have to follow and then when she says she wants uh, lived in a castle he buys her this castle that's way too big and just there's nothing about it. it's like he can control everything he's there he's controlling and it's just like he wants to recreate recreate something that he can't have again Mm -hmm. like truthfully he just wants to be that kid playing in the snow again so that snow globe and rosebud are both very kind of iconic 
pieces in this whole movie. Because at the end, when you see the snow globe, when Citizen Kane is just, or Citizen Kane, when Kane is destroying <laughs> the whole bedroom, he like rips apart Susan's bedroom and mm-hmm. destroys and breaks everything. And then he sees the snow globe. And that's the only thing he doesn't destroy. He holds on to that. Yeah. And when he dies, it breaks. So it's just as if like that's the end. Like all his hopes and dreams of attaining what he's missing have officially shattered because he's dead now. And then yeah. when you go into okay, this is another representation where they use music really well. So mm-hmm. when they go into the final scene where they start showing all of uh, Kane's possessions and it just kind of goes over everything, there's this kind of somber, kind of like sad music that plays. And then as soon as we see the sleigh, it turns into this really creepy, uh, dark music and it burns and it's like a kind of a horror-themed music. Yeah. So that's kind of like when you see them basically tossing his sled in and being like, yep, he got everything in the world that he wanted, but never what he actually wanted. Like, Mm -hmm. cause that's it. That was it. Like he fought to have everything. And realistically he had nothing. I thought it was interesting. Like you you see a lot of people now, like they, um, with, with how Trump was in the media and stuff, uh, over the last few years, people, a lot of people make connections between Kane and Trump. And I think there, there is some, while Kane does come from privilege, I think the difference is like he actually did scrape and claw his way to success, basically. Mm-hmm. So he's only like Trump in that he's basically in a moral capitalist and, you know, propagandist for himself. Like he's always selling his image uh, and he's always selling himself to whatever benefits him. Like you see in the uh, in the early uh, documentary footage or whatever, where at one point he's he's he hel- he's sh- sort of seen helping like roosevelt get elected and then he's seen like hanging out with hitler at one point <laughs> um but but he's like far more capable and clever than trump ever was or will be like he you know trump trump is just like a is one of those people who has always failed upwards kind of thing right um uh but yet the irony here is that kane doesn't get to hold office because he has a he has an actual like scandal that destroys him basically, but uh, Trump likes this movie and identifies with it. Uh, ironically, <laughs> of course enough. <he> does. yeah. <laughs> I, I will mention um, one of my favorite just little techniques he uses in this, and it is at the end. It's it's the, the scene you mentioned where where um, after he dies all of his possessions are like auctioned off. Right. So there's this big room just filled to the brim with shit. It looks like the fucking room full of crates at the end of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where, where all those, you know, the big government warehouse that has all that like shit that they keep. But here it's like, you know, it's a big auction. So you see the auction from sort of a top Eagle eye point of view kind of thing. And then it fades slow into a view of the city. And it kind of almost somewhat matches up like the boxes of the that they're using the box up stuff in the auction almost kind of match up with the the buildings that you see from, you know, looking overhead down the city. Then it fades back again to after the auction when the stuff that isn't being sold is just being thrown in the fucking furnace. And then you get, and it's a nice little di- dissolve technique that I thought was really, really good. And I, th- and I, th- I think it would have been way more successful if they had cut a half hour out of this movie. And if- yeah. <laughs> they also did this, uh, the transition. There's a lot of transition scenes that they did were really well done too. Mm-hmm. Cause they had like the fade transitions and just like how they did that kind of stuff. It was cause I think back then there was a lot of like the slide ones. Yeah. Or, you have yeah. W- w- yeah. Wipes and stuff. Yeah. Wipes. That's it. And this one, there was a, a couple fade ones that were really well done. Cause they took one scene and they, they faded out to the new scene. And I thought they, they did that brilliantly like it was just it followed so smoothly it didn't look rough mm-hmm. or abrupt or anything just freaking brilliant like we we watched this movie for uh last week's class and uh we learned about sound so this is why they kind of focused on sound but mm-hmm. the whole like i mentioned to you before i'm like citizen king keeps being mentioned in my book so we should probably watch it because i think it would, it would be cool I make sense why it's brought up so many times in my book because every single chapter when they talk about something, it's in this book. It, or sorry, mm. it's in this movie. Like everything they do, all the techniques that we uh, kind of go off of now and everything that we do in order to create movies now was used in Citizen Kane, like a great yeah. amount of them. 
So to see kind of like the original work of how a lot of these techniques kind of started to become a little bit more common or a little bit more well-known and to see them now, it's really interesting. Like it's just Mm -hmm. such a, a cool kind of, past and like present thing and there's movies now today that still shit the bed on a lot of these <laughs> techniques and this again this is a movie done so long ago that just did it so freaking well like i can see why it is one of the best movies like still today just because it's uh if you're into this kind of stuff i can totally see why people are into it because it does really dive deep into the storyline so if this is your type of movie absolutely like i could totally see this being like amazing but if you are like me who likes a bit more actors a really short attention span unfortunately it's a little long to watch mm-hmm. but it is absolutely worth watching just based on technique alone yeah like just the technical aspect the editing the directing the acting the acting's freaking good too i shouldn't even just i keep mentioning like the the editing but the acting is really well done too mm-hmm. and uh yeah it's just it's a cool movie to watch it is long and it is hard to stay focused but <laughs> it is a really cool movie to watch i'm happy i got to watch it i am definitely happy that i got to be exposed to this type of movie yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to tell anybody it, it holds up as like the greatest movie ever made or whatever because that that that's a that's kind of a stupid statement and to, to start with. It but is. but I mean it it is a, a great movie in the sense that it's an important one. Again, its its influence is is what's mostly important, but it's also excellently uh, executed film. The only again the only problem I think we we both just agree here. The only problem is just too long. There's just too much meet in the middle and there's not enough you know interesting stuff going on during that mm-hmm. middle part but the beginning and the end are really good like solidly really good and they book in a film that could have been shortened considerably but uh yeah 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 uh, so the budget for this was it went over budget it was it was supposed to be like i think maybe a hundred thousand less than what we ended up with, but it's uh, eight hundred and thirty nine thousand seven hundred and twenty seven dollars was the budget. Don't have any box office, uh, and we'll we'll sort of get into why. But um, no box office for back in the day. But uh, there was re releases that garnered it one point six million. So it eventually made money for somebody. I don't think I don't necessarily think Orson Welles ever saw any of the money for this movie. But uh, come back to him. But uh, somebody did. You can find this anywhere, and as I mean, if people call it the greatest movie ever made, you should, you know, realistically be able to find this anywhere. And yes, you can. You can get it on. You buy it on YouTube. You can get it on Blu-ray, DVD, iTunes, Google Play, Microsoft Store, Fandango, Now, Vudu, Movie Prime. Anywhere, Prime, and all that shit. So we'll get into a little bit of trivia here. There was a shit ton of trivia on the fucking IMDb page. So there's I, I, so much trivia on the Prime, <laughs> like because if you watch it on Prime. Uh, I was watching it on my my phone because I forgot my Chromecast or my Cody forgot the Chromecast at his freaking friend's place. So mm. I had to watch the movie on my phone. <laughs> and, <laughs> and during the movie, like I was checking the time and there would be a uh, quiz or yeah, just like facts and stuff that would pop up like during the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> it was like mentioning like goofs and just uh just trivia and like just all sorts of like just insight and all this kind of stuff so hmm. there's a lot going on mm. so uh co-writer herman j mankiewicz actually knew william randolph hearst and his mistress and there's actually um a movie on netflix called mank starring uh, gary oldman where he plays uh herman mankiewicz and like it it's like a dramatic recreation of his story and how he didn't like necessarily get all the credit he deserved for writing Citizen Kane and whatnot. But um, William Randolph Hearst and his mistress, Marion Davies, the two figures that, that Citizen Kane essentially lampoons, both Herman J. Mankiewicz and cinematographer Greg Tolan had been ejected from one of Hearst's famous parties at his elaborate homestead in San Simon for excess drinking. William Randolph Hearst was so angered by the film that he accused Orson Welles of being a communist in order to keep the film from being released. And that, that's kind of funny. Like that kind of, it feels like, you know, Wells kind of foresaw uh, that sort of reaction because Kane himself gets that reaction. Depending on who you ask, one person says, oh, he's a fascist. Oh, he's a communist. He's a, he's this, he's that. 
William Randolph Hearst forbade any advertisements of the film in any of his newspapers or indeed any other RKO movies and offered to buy the negative from studio head George Schaefer with the view to destroying it. Uh, fortunately, Arson Wells had already previewed the film to influential industry figures to rave reviews, so it was granted a limited theatrical release. Uh, hence, not big numbers when it was first released. Critics from non-Hearst newspapers fell over themselves praising the film. The film itself was not reviewed in any Hearst newspaper until the mid-1970s when the film critic for Hearst, Los Angeles Herald examiner Ray Lond, finally reviewed it. Um, despite all the publicity, the film was a box office flop and was quickly re- uh, co-signed to RKO Vaults. At the 1941 Academy Awards, the film was booed every time one of its nine nominations was announced which just kind of shows the influence that Hearst had at the time in basically everywhere. Like he was basically an Orson Welles type figure, you know, or Citizen Kane type figure. I mean. <laughs> Man. um, uh, it was only really released to the public in the mid fifties. So, you know, like a decade later, it finally gets like a proper release. And I, I assume that was a much wider one. Um, the film's opening with just uh, the title and no star names was unprecedented in 1941. It is now the industry norm for Hollywood blockbusters. So uh, there you go. Another little bit of influence there that this movie uh, uh, created. The audience that watches Karen um, Kane make his speech is, in fact, a still photo which I did not pick up on when I was watching this uh, to give the illusion of movement hundreds of holes uh, were uh, pricked with a pin and lights moved uh, about behind it. That's so cool. That's fucking amazing. The camera looks up at Charles Foster Kane and his best friend uh, Jebediah Leland and down at the weaker characters like Susan Alexander Kane. This was a technique that Orson, and you mentioned this, that Orson Welles, this. That Orson Welles uh, borrowed from John Ford who had used it two years previously on Stagecoach in 1939. And yeah, uh, one of the big influences for Wells to actually make this and like uh, some of the techniques directly came from John Ford and Stagecoach. Uh, Wells privately watched Stagecoach in 39 about 40 times while making this film. Uh-huh. So, so he was, yeah, like in, in the stories of Wells um, and uh, we'll get into it here. Uh, the, sort of physical toll this movie took on him. Uh, according to Ruth Warwick, Orson Welles was not in good shape at the beginning of production. When principal photography began, Welles was suffering from the effects of caffeine poisoning as a result of consuming 30 to 40 cups of coffee a day. Jesus. Welles then switched to tea, figuring that the hassle of having to brew the beverage would naturally limit his intake, but Welles had someone to call to brew the tea for him, and within two weeks, Welles was the color of tannic acid. So his his skin had actually changed color. He had been taking in so much tea. Um, it was also reported that he would go on for long periods without eating, then put away two or three large steaks with side items in at one setting. And you do see his weight change in this movie. You do, yeah. So as, as he gets older, he balloons. And it's, it's, it's just one of those performances. Like, you mentioned the scene where he um, he's trashing his, his uh, wife's room. Mm-hmm. And he's really old at that point, character-wise, right? Mm-hmm. And you can see that he can't quite do it so well anymore. Like he, he's very, he's playing an old man very well. He's blown up. You expect him to have a heart attack right there. The way mm-hmm. his face is and everything, it's very, very well done. Orson Welles' deal of RKO gave him unprecedented freedom for a first-time director. He was uh, to write, produce, direct, and act in two pictures for the company with complete autonomy in the hiring of actors, technicians, and final cut. That's fucking crazy. They just don't let people do that. Uh, Studio boss George Schaefer had to greenlight the project and could veto any requests for extra finance over the modest $500,000 budget. There we go. Uh, which would eventually be exceeded by $200,000. So he's off by $100,000 there. On, uh, Jeez. Yeah. But un- <laughs> Jesus Christ. Terrible. Uh, but no one other than Wells is allowed to view the, the rushes. Uh, for his work in this movie, Orson Welles became the first person to be Oscar nominated for Best Actor and Best Director for the same film. He also won Best Original Screenplay and was the first person to be nominated in all three categories for the same film as well. That would be kind of the, the uh, story of his career, too. Like, he basically started on top. And even though a lot of his work going forward was, like, arguably so much better than Citizen Kane, 
he just he never really quite achieved the the same level of like critical notoriety and shit that uh, he got this time out. So it was like always a struggle from from uh, here going forward. Of interest to me, uh, and it kind of explains why a lot of the score is just so fucking good and like horror ish is that this was the first film score for Bernard Herrmann, who'd uh, go on to be one of Hollywood's top film composers from the 40s to the 70s, scoring, among others, several of Alfred Hitchcock's most famous works. And he did do a lot of horror stuff throughout his career. And, uh, yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I have, I have one interesting fact. Mm-hmm. The actress who played Susan in the mm-hmm. final scenes, she was pregnant. Oh, really? Yeah. So they had her, they filmed her either behind, so sitting down under a table, or they gave her baggier clothes to hide her, her tummy. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, and they were saying that it was a good thing that she was pregnant, because that means that they had to stay on schedule for the filming. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of like a first, because usually if you hear like a female's pregnant when she's in a film, they're like, they get mad at her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and they cause shit. This was like, no, this is good, this is good. We gotta make sure we stay on schedule. Yeah, so. now, now now it's like, oh, uh, uh, Jennifer Lopez just got pregnant. Uh, Jennifer Lopez, even that's like 10 years out of date at this point, right? Um, <laughs> who, who have, uh, 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 Margot Robbie just got pregnant. Oh, we're going to have to shut down Suicide Squad for nine months until well, she... Well, uh, Wonder Woman was pregnant when she was oh, in yeah. her movie. Gal Gadot, yeah. Yeah, she was pregnant, but they used technology. Yeah, they just used C- CGI and shit, yeah. 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 Um, so I don't know what we're going to do next time. We're going to do something way more like exciting and probably lowbrow and, and, and fun. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not being critical in, in that regard. I mean, uh, the, I'm glad I got to finally watch this. Uh, it, just, it just, it just turns out the movie wasn't all that fun. It was just like, Oh, we're we're an hour and a half. We're in an hour and a half, and I still got a half hour. I know what happens. I know his sleigh gets burned, and he breaks the globe, and he dies. And I know why. I already know why. I'm watching all these people try to figure out why, and it I do, and it's like okay, and there's nothing happening. There's like nothing interesting happening while this story is taking place. It's like I just want to get to the end where the cool shit happens, you know. So there's a nice book into the cool shit that starts out the film, and. <laughs> Uh, it, it's it's a slog. It's a fucking slog. That's all there is to it. it, 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 it I'm not gonna deny that. Yeah. Like I said, it's worth watching just to see the actual brilliance of like movie making magic. Mm-hmm. But it's it's long. Uh, I got warned. My my boss told me because I told him I was gonna watch him for the podcast. He's like, it's long, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh great. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I. Uh, was trying to finish it today and I think I fell asleep three times, maybe four. I had to rewind the movie a bunch. I thought it's funny too because I thought it was so much further in the movie than I was like when I was rewinding it. I'm like, oh God, I'm not that far into it. <laughs> I mean uh, the what I was thinking about it and it's like what you could have done if you really wanted to cut a half hour out of this, which would have been ideal is you extend the documentary part that begins at the, you know, at the start of the film, you extend that so that it's a documentary where you see parts of the interviews that he does with the different people, you know, in present day. Mm-hmm. So you, you'll, you'll get like little snippets of the interviews and you get this whole picture of who Charles Foster Kane actually was. And then it's bookended by the actual real life dramatic stuff of what actually happened. And you could get all the beats that you need and it would, I think it would just flow and work way better. Like, honestly, I could re-edit in my mind right now, the stuff I would just drop out of this film and, and stick into the documentary format. So basically what you do is you start out the film, the way you started out, you move into the documentary and most of the meat of the film is just, you're watching the actual documentary play in the film and then it just bookended at the end with with uh, the auction shit. Um, I think the the documentary more was to make him look like he was this brilliant man who had all the happiness in the world. And then mm-hmm. when you actually unfold it, it just shows his misery and yeah. like how he's not happy. 
So yeah, it's 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 a propaganda documentary basically. Yeah, and and like he, and like the whole the whole thing is you know he owned a newspaper he could. Uh, create any story he wanted to create and yeah like when he lost the elections and he said mm -hmm. that the the polls were (laughs) polls were rigged (laughs) (laughs) yeah where have we heard that one shit actually if anything i feel like trump would hate that part because that's literally trump trump just trump (laughs) trump is so stupid he doesn't get the actual point of the film he he actually (laughs) relates to it he he thinks that he thinks that kane is you know sympathetic in this he thinks Kane is right in everything he does. Basically, he, he's that dumb. Um, but yeah, enough enough political shit. Uh, so yeah, we're we're gonna figure something out. It's it's probably gonna be it's probably gonna be trashy. It's probably gonna be fun. I'll, I'll pick something from our list that will be uh, cool to watch. And um, until then, <laughs> <laughs> until then, uh, do you have anything you need to plug uh, this week, Lee? Uh, nothing exciting. Like I said from last week or last episode, you can find me on my Instagram. Oh yeah, follow uh, me there. Follow her on Instagram. She's actually, she actually has the ability to like properly use Instagram to like promote shit on here. I I can't do it. I got a tablet, but it's like it's just so fucking mind-numbingly slow. It's like oh, I've got to save it's pictures to. <laughs> I have to. No, it's just I have to. I have to like save pictures to the fucking tablet from like the shitty browser that comes with it, and then I gotta like figure out how to make that work in the shitty Instagram app. And it's like fuck this crap. It's like I should be able to just use Instagram for my fucking PC. If I could do that, then I'd be happy. But no, apparently that's why that... you have me as your co-host. Exactly. <laughs> Apparently you're our apparently you know our social media relations, I guess. Yeah, maybe. I need to change my name though, because now my name doesn't relate to anything that we do. Yeah. Oh well. <laughs> I just tag you in it all though. Yeah. So yeah. Um you can find me on Instagram, uh Mighty Tiny All Star. And uh there's always updates of when the episodes come out, and there's always a bunch of dog pictures. Mm-hmm. Sasha is there a lot. <laughs> yeah it's good stuff uh and you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com where you can find our apple podcast facebook and youtube links join the facebook group if you want to you know get in on the sometimes conversations that happen mostly it's just hey we got a new episode coming out check it out that, that's kind of mostly what happens on on that uh, page but um join so you can start a conversation mm-hmm. what yeah <laughs> fucking crazy idea like speak up like hey maybe do this movie uh okay we'll we'll do that movie bring us on a right path again <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah uh but until then uh thank you guys for a lot uh listening thank you lady lee and uh we'll thank be you. back when we're back yeah bye-bye bye
for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For further episodes, our Apple Podcasts, Facebook, and YouTube links, please go to tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through. Thank you.